podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Today, I'm speaking with a Grammy award-winning composer and conductor whose music has been performed in all corners of the world and for whom everything seems possible. Eric Whittaker has united 100,000 singers in more than 145 countries for his groundbreaking virtual choirs. His debut album as both a composer and a conductor, Light and Gold, went straight to the top of the charts, and he's even collaborated with NASA, his composition Deep Field having been inspired by the Hubble telescope, leading him to work on a film seen at arts and science festivals across the globe. He's coming to Sydney to conduct the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs in the Concert Hall of the Sydney Opera House, for a concert which includes several of his own works, the well-known Lux Arumque, or Light and Gold, as well as Saint-Chapelle, and the Sydney premiere of the work which gives the concert its title, The Sacred Veil. I'm delighted that Eric Whittaker is able to take time out from his schedule to talk to me from his home in Los Angeles. Eric Whittaker, welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's great to be with you. Well, tell me about The Sacred Veil, because I believe it's got rather tragic origins. Truly. My, my best friend in the world, a poet named Charles Anthony Svestri, we actually met in college choir 31 years ago. Uh, he married a young woman named Julie. Uh, this would have been 15 years ago. Oh, no, he, he married her, sorry, 25 years ago. But 15 years ago, she received the diagnosis that she had ovarian cancer. And at the time, they had two kids, three and seven. And she fought very hard, but the cancer ultimately took her life at the age of 35. And for years and years, Tony and I, uh, working on other pieces and just, just being friends, would, would talk about this and, and Tony just trying to process this atom bomb in his life. And I had always encouraged him to try to write about it. You know, I, I know for me, I can't possibly relate to something that, that, that tragic in, in my own life, but I, I know from experience that somehow writing and creating helps me to process the world. And I had encouraged him for many years to write about it. And then one day out of the blue, he placed on my piano what is now the very first movement of the Sacred Veil. But it, he didn't intend it to be anything. He didn't expect me to set it to music. It just was a thing that had, had sort of arisen. And I set it very quickly to music. And it was only after that that I, I called him up and I said, I think there's more here if, if you're ready for this. And we had a long talk about what that meant and, and where we would go. And we decided, okay, let's, let's do this thing. It's now this 12-minute hour-long work or 12-movement hour-long work. Mm. Some of the words are by you, though, aren't they? That's right. So not knowing what we were doing, we, we knew that we had well just this one piece we didn't even know would be the first movement. And so I asked Tony let's go to the moment of Julie's passing. And Tony wrote about that, which is now the 11th movement. And he wrote very honestly and unadorned about it. And then I said, let's write about the moment that you knew you were in love, and which is now the third movement. And he wrote about that. And as we knew then, we kind of had the pillars of what the piece would be. But as we started to explore, not only was there room for another voice, mine, where... Uh, I started to tell Tony's story and I knew that there, there were just things that he couldn't say about himself, especially that I saw him as a survivor in, in a heroic way. And Tony is the world's most humble person. He could never, ever say that himself. So I wrote a couple of the movements. But more importantly, 
we went through Julie's writings that Tony had collected. She was a fine, gifted writer. And three of the movements ended up being in her, her voice. Some of the most beautiful mm. poetry I know, actually. Does writing words come as easily to you as, as when you're composing the actual music? <laughs> well, thank you for asking me about it. It's, um, I have to say it's my, <laughs> best to say this, writing music for me is, is not an enjoyable experience. I'm compelled to do it. But I agonize. You're compelled to do it. Oh my god! Yeah, I do. that's how I feel. It, I have to do it, but it's. Oh, you have to get it out of yourself. You I have to get yes, it out. I yeah, not like I have a deadline, but but more that yeah, there's something in me that that thinks and sees and feels the world through music, and but the the act of taking all of that emotional musical color and wrangling it into a piece of music that has coherence and its own gravitational laws, I find. It's just excruciating. I put it off as long as possible. <laughs> writing poetry or writing lyrics, on the other hand, is just joyous. I love, I, I, I love digging deep with words and and playing word games. Maybe because it's not my it's not my day job, and so I never yeah. feel the the pressure that that I that I might from from writing music. But I really love doing it. I mean, do many of your works tend to have this quite profound origin in this kind of uh, you know? long gestation period well i'm i'm a i'm a very slow composer i think uh, it usually takes me months and months to write even a, a re relatively small piece and the origins of the pieces i can look back and say I, I can't think of a single example that it isn't at least partly autobiographical that whatever i'm writing is a very accurate reflection of where i am in my life and and in my worldview and so I don't know if that's profound, but it's incredibly personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty good. Well, anyway, if people would like to hear more about the details of the Sacred Veil, I'd encourage them to go to Eric's website, ericwhitaker.com. And if you look in his uh, music catalogue, you'll find a lovely series of videos where Eric takes us in a real deep dive through the piece, movement by movement. But Eric, as you said, it's like 50-odd minutes now. It's 12 movements. Is that something that you sort of structure out from, from go to woe after you've decided, right, this is the, this is the work we, we are going to, to do to, to make this happen? Or do you just kind of go, yep, it's finished, and that's how long it is? <laughs> I wish. I wish it were more like that. Um, it's funny because the, the, the older I get and the, the more I, I hope refined my process gets with, composition. I do most of my work ahead of time before I write a note of music. I, I spend so much time thinking about structure and detailing the blueprints of the piece really before I've decided notes, harmonies, rhythms, any of that kind of thing. So I, I make these things that I call emotional architecture. And they're these pages where I can actually look from 35,000 feet at the piece and the way that it's going to unfold. With the Sacred Veil, it was much, much messier than that. It was really, we sort of have this, this thread on a jumper that we're going to start to pull and just see where this goes. And I, I think Tony would agree that we never imagined we would go as deep as we did. That, that at, at some point, we had the conscious conversation, which was, if we're going to do this, let's do this. Let's, let's get our hands dirty and let's be as honest as we possibly can. And so there's just no way to structure that ahead of time. It's, it's, mm. It sort of unfolds in front of you. And the, the best I could do at that time is just my North Star always was, was authenticity. It was no matter what, be honest. Don't try to dazzle. Don't try to overwrite. Uh, 
Don't try to impress. Just be present, whatever the, the, the words need. Well, I think we have to have our first piece of music now. And uh, Eric, you've got quite a diverse selection for us to listen to. Um, and we seem to be saving your own works for the upcoming concert so people will can uh, hear the sacred veil <laughs> in person. Um, but you've got some Ravel to start off. Uh, why have you chosen this one and what is it? So the, for me, the Ravel String Quartet is one of the world's perfect pieces. First, I've, I've known it since I really started studying and learning about classical music in my late teens when I'd gone to, to uni. I just remember... I love the sound world. I love the the colors. I love the the French style. But then over the years, as I've spent more and more time composing, I just marvel at this piece that is, it's perfectly efficient. You can't believe that he gets this panoply of colors out of four instruments. And just like Debussy, it's he only wrote one string quartet. So he sort of said, well, that's how you do that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I'm done here. <laughs> yeah. He also did the same thing for choral works, right? He wrote those little trois chansons and said, that's how you do that, by the way. And I'll never do it. That to me is just amazing that somebody can just pick a genre and say, that's that's the most perfect version of that you'll ever hear. Um, so I probably the Ravel String Quartet is the piece that if I were stranded on a desert island, I would take with me. The Asse-Vif movement from Ravel's String Quartet, performed for us there by the Australian String Quartet, the first choice of my guest in conversation today, composer Eric Whittaker. He's coming to the Sydney Opera House to conduct Vox, part of the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs for The Sacred Veil. It's on Saturday the 17th of September. Go to sydneyphilharmoniachoirs.com.au for more information.
Eric, you touched on it in that introduction about, uh, you know, your studies. You actually were a bit of a late bloomer when it uh, came to coming to this profession and uh, coming to classical music, weren't you? Yeah, quite late. I, um, I grew up with, well, first with computers. Uh, I, I learned to program on a little Commodore 64. I, you as well, I see you ah. nodding. No, no, I'm Apple IIe. <laughs> Apple II. No, oh. TRS-80, TRS-80 before the Commodore 64. TRS-80, amazing. I, even though you know what these computers are. Um, yeah, so I learned to program in basic, you know, like everybody uh, during that time. And what, what I marvel at now, even thinking of like the Commodore 64, it was because it had 64K of RAM, right? It's, it, you, could, yeah. you couldn't open a photo on that thing now. Um, <laughs> but that led me to computer music. So Jean-Michel Jarre and Vangelis and Tangerine Dream, which then led me to more popular computer music like Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys and Erasure. And by the time I was 14, I was spending every cent I had on drum machines and synthesizers. And I really thought when I graduated at 18, that's what I would do is I would go and, and write pop music or maybe film music. And then uh, I joined choir in university and that changed my life irrevocably. I, the first piece I sang was the Requiem by Mozart. And I just, I, I really can look at my entire life and say there was the moment before I I opened my mouth and sang the Requiem and, and the, the moment afterwards, I was utterly transformed. Three years after that event, three years into my seven year undergraduate degree, I, I wrote my very first piece, this little tiny piece called Go Lovely Rose as a gift to this conductor who had changed my life. And that was it. I was I, I was off to the races wow. after that. But you weren't writing music for yourself to sing. I mean, you're in a choir. You can obviously sing. I can sing okay. Uh, you could probably hear my voice. It's getting lower every year. So I've been told I'm useful, but I wouldn't say. <laughs> no one has sought me out as a singer. But um, yeah, the, the first that first piece I actually sang in the choir. And um, yeah. I don't recommend that for anybody. It's horrendous because you don't hear the blend. All you hear is, you know... I think composers by nature are control freaks and very, very meticulous. Yeah. And the last place you want to be is is in the middle of the storm while it's all happening. But I, I sang the premiere as a bass with, with this man, David Weiler, my mentor, who conducting. But what was the main catalyst to transition you from that, you know, electronic pop music to the classical genre? Part of me wants to say it was the sound and the complexity and the, you know, the, the, the first piece that I sang the very first rehearsal that I was part of, we sang the the Kyrie from the Requiem, which is a fugue. And I didn't know what a fugue was. I didn't even know what counterpoint was. But standing in the middle of this room with a hundred other people singing and experiencing counterpoint in 3D, I think changed me. But I look back now and I, I honestly think that what swept me up in all of it and continues to drive me is that it was the first time in my life that I felt part of something larger than myself. And I, I wasn't really raised with religion. I'm not a religious person. But having that experience and being this, this small but essential cog in this uh, cosmic Swiss watch, that was it. I think even more than choral music or classical music, mm. I've spent my life chasing that dragon. Tell me whether this is a fair observation, but I'm wondering whether you're kind of interested in the electronic music uh, in your teens. I wonder whether I'm hearing that in, especially your choral music, it's like uh, you're trying to reproduce some of the electronic sounds with voices and with acoustic instruments. Do you think, is that a fair observation or am I just imagining that? Yeah, I think it's very, very astute. And in fact, I still, uh, even this morning, I was working on a new piece and I'm using this old gooey analog synth sound that you would have heard in 1983, 1984 to compose with. And I think even just 
the way that I, especially that I write for voices in a certain way, it reminds me very much of what I would have been doing in my bedroom as a teenager with synthesizers and just, just playing these, these thick clouds of, of chords. Well, some more music now. And, uh, well, it's a big one, Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> Why? <laughs> What's the significance of this one? So, again, it's, for me, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's, um, I, I, I wouldn't say that Prokofiev's underrated. He's probably on everybody's top ten list. But I think sometimes Prokofiev gets pigeonholed with a certain kind of sound. And, again, as a composer, I look at his music and I just cannot believe the sophistication and the humanity and the depth of them. It's... I would dream of having 1% of that level of musical intelligence and craft and skill. The fifth specifically, there's that, the third movement, which is the first time I heard it live. I'll never forget, I was in Las Vegas and the St. Louis Symphony had come through. I just went to the concert at night because an orchestra was there. I was a college student. And that third movement started and I had an out-of-body experience hearing the violins go into the stratosphere and, and the sound of all of that. Yeah, it still thrills me. Every time I hear it, I have to stop whatever I'm doing and, and just marvel at this piece. Part of the third movement of Prokofiev's Fifth Symphony, giving my guest at the time, Eric Whitaker, an out-of-body experience, apparently. We heard Lauren Marzell conducting the Cleveland Orchestra in that performance. So, Eric, when you when you went to college and started your proper music training, for want of a better expression, I mean, there must have been an incredibly steep learning curve. It's in terms of the other people, surely were streets ahead of you in terms of certain practical 
technical musicianship type things. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, I think there still is. <laughs> I'm still catching up. Um, You're still struggling with that. <laughs> yeah, truly. I mean, I, 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 of course, I can read music and I write music now with yeah. pencil and paper, but I still, it's not my first instinct. And I don't think I, I eventually did my master's degree at the Juilliard School. And my God, did they put us through the crucible in terms of music theory and ear training. But I still don't think I think the way other trained composers do about music theory or I, I tend to think I think in color and emotion and this kind of gooey liquid reality that mm. for instance my son I've, uh, is all, he'll be 17 in a couple of weeks and he's a jazzer and he's got proper jazz skills and sometimes he'll talk to me about music and I'll think I just don't think about, I, you know, he's like just, oh, I love it when the, you know, the sharp five and he's down to the, down to the flat three. Diminished sevens or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah all of that. And it. I've been through enough training. I can sort of speak his language, but I never, ever think like that in terms of, of composing. And so early on in college, um, yeah, I, I definitely was struggling, but I really look back now and I think it was a gift it, because in a way I had this, I don't know if it's an advantage, but I had a bit of a superpower in that I, I was unrestrained by, by my sheer lack of knowledge. I was so green and so naive that it never occurred to me that I needed to know something before I started writing or that I might be accidentally doing something that I shouldn't be doing, do you know? Mm, there's no voice saying, you can't actually do that, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and also I didn't, I mean this in the, with all the humility in the world, but I didn't take these classical pieces that I was hearing and put them on this pedestal. I, for instance, I didn't listen to Prokofiev at the time and think, I can't possibly even think about writing a piece of music because look what Prokofiev's done. For me, it was just, oh, great. Okay, well, I'm going to do a thing too. To me, Paul Simon was as important as, as Prokofiev or Stevie Wonder, you know? And so, and I think by not putting them on a pedestal, I think it allowed me at least to be stubborn enough and again, naive enough until I was well into my 30s before I realized, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. But but by then I'd kind of found my style. I'd found myself and kind yeah. of created a way of doing it. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think I got yeah. lucky by not having that training. Oh, an interesting perspective. That's great. But, but you said uh, pencil and paper when you mentioned composing music. Was that just metaphorical or do you actually still use pencil and paper rather than a computer to notate your works? Yeah, literal paper and pencil. Which, what happened to all that computer programming? Isn't that in the funny? I, you'd think, you would think, with all my love, and I still have this this adoration of computers and electronic music, and you'd think I would just have the whole. But what I discovered over the years, and I, I have to maybe blame uh, composer John Corleano, who I studied with at Juilliard, and John, I'll never forget. He he used to be very upset at computer programs, notation programs, and he'd say, for instance, you could look at young composers, he would say this, he'd say, you could look at young composers now and you could see that they had used the cut and paste function and just duck, 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 right? And so, and it creates a kind of minimalism. And he said, in my day, cut and paste was literally cut and paste. So if you decided that you wanted to replace something or have a bar repeating, you would have to, you know, use these Xerox machines and then cut it with, with scissors and then tape it into the score. It was so painstaking. And he said that the, the great lesson in it is that it was so much work that you thought a lot about what you were going to put down on the page before you put it down on the page. 
you really kind of had it worked out in your head before you scored an entire page of music and then said, oh, that doesn't really work. And that really went into my heart. And I found that I was just a better composer when I was with this meticulous, uh, effortful uh, technique of writing paper and pencil. Just made the music better. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, Ravel wasn't using a Xerox machine when he was writing his stuff. No. <laughs> I don't think Prokofiev would have been either. Yeah, and I think there's a good there's a good argument to be made that they were genuinely hearing this in their head before they put it down. I think all the time of the Rite of Spring, the, the Stravinsky, that you can play it on the piano, but th the leap between what he was writing from piano to then hearing that with the orchestra there's no way he orchestrated the piano part, if you know what I mean. He was thinking in terms of this full symphony orchestra. And I think you can only really do that if you're hearing it all in your head. And today's modern tools, I think, um, at least for me, they, they always lead me off the path to hearing it in my head first. Interesting. A lot of your works you do conduct yourself, and that's why you're coming to Australia. But there'd be times where you'd be a bit more hands-off, I assume, and when someone else is conducting or performing it, do you ever discover something about your music that you weren't aware of? Yeah, occasionally. So I started conducting, not because I wanted to be a conductor, but because the typical way in classical music you do it is a composer sits in the audience and then they, they finish performing the piece and then they turn and they gesture to the audience, you know? That's right. And this, this poor young woman stands up like, yeah, I'm responsible for that, that disaster. That's right. And, and, uh, and, for me, I, I just always found that, like, I wanted to crawl out of my skin. I, I, again, partly being a control freak, but also because the music is so personal to me. It's like somebody standing on stage and, and just sort of whispering your deepest, darkest secrets and getting them all wrong. And so that's why I started conducting. So most of the time, I feel like I can at least get a performance from there, here to there, and it's the way I hoped it would sound. It's the, the ideal version of my head. That being said, occasionally a conductor comes along and does something, pull music out of the music that I hadn't seen there before. Maybe a, a, a gesture or a, a structural idea mm. that they, they see it clearer than, than I did while I was making it. And then the moment that happens, I'll take their idea. I adopt that. Of course, I'll tell them. I'll say, but that's brilliant. <laughs> and from there on out then, I, whenever I conduct... I do the same thing with gestures, by the way. I have no formal training in conducting. So my conducting is basically just a collection of all my favorite conductors that I've seen over the years. And I, I have just <laughs> kind of created my own hodgepodge of, of a language. Is there a particular favorite conductor? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I still think David Weiler, this, this man, my very first choir director, I think many of the things I do are based on what he did. Yeah, I, th I think he's he had a gentleness in his hands and his shoulders and... I didn't realize it until years later, but what he was doing, especially for singers, was he was mirroring the way their bodies ought to be while they sing. Singers, I find, even professional singers, it's a much different beast than an orchestra. An orchestra, they're going to play their violin like you play a violin, and really not much you do as a conductor is going to change the way they, they move. But singers, you can profoundly affect the physiology of their body by, by your own posture and the way you're moving your hands. And David, very early on, was teaching me, without even knowing that I, that I was being taught, was teaching me that being relaxed and low, deep breaths and, and open, warm vowel is uh, 
that I can model that for the choir while I'm conducting. And without them knowing mm. they're doing it, it, it changes the sound. Do you ever see younger musicians, whether they be composers or conductors or singers, starting to model themselves against you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, occasionally I hear, well, there's two, two things. One, sometimes I hear like the influence of, I guess, whatever my harmonic language is, which just always makes me smile because I also think I'm probably taking it from several sources that for everyone from Ravel to Arvo Pert to Thomas Newman. Yep. So, so it's almost <laughs> like it's just being passed down from generation to generation. But I think also, again, because I had no background with this early on, I decided that I was going to, in a way, be my own publisher. And so some of my early works were, went with the publisher, but then I realized very early on that all the tools were there for me to do it myself. This was just as, as, you know, good digital printing was available and these notation programs where you could hire somebody to do exactly what the, the publishers were doing. And so I kind of created my own uh, business, if you will. And I see a lot of young composers too, sort of, they really want to ask me about that. Like, how does one control their own destiny with, with these tools? That's been fascinating to me to watch this new generation sort of move forward, you know? Mm. Now, we sort of touched on it with the Sacred Veil, um, talking about, you know, planning out the work and is it finished and so on. But I, and I appreciate that there are deadlines that need to be met. But how do you know when something's finished? Truly, the only reason I'm ever finished is the deadline. It, I, I would still be working on the first. Keep tinkering forever. Endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. Yeah. yeah, it's even my first works. If I'm 30 years old and if I'm performing them now with somebody, I have to resist the temptation to get back in and start start changing it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's never right. I'm, I'm, I'm always somewhere close, but do you know what I mean? And, and for me, the, the hardest thing is a piece that I had a great idea, or at least I thought a solid idea and I had a good start on it. And I just don't feel like I, I got there in the end. And the, the, those are the ones that are the most difficult for me. Those are the ones that I really want to just, just endlessly be trying to figure out what, Maybe it's this, maybe it's this, oh, a little bit this. Some more music now, Eric. Uh, and our next choice is, well, opera and contemporary opera, Nixon in China. Yeah. So Nixon in China, where do we even begin? Uh, I'm massively influenced by John Adams and not only the kind of minimalist style, but what I would call a West Coast ideology. His music sounds to me like the West Coast of, of America. Everything that's good about that pioneer American spirit the you know, the, the up against the Pacific Ocean. I just, I adore the sound. And it's the only opera I know. I can basically sing the entire opera by heart. And I learned it from listening to it on a CD. I've never looked wow. at the score. So it's, I, I adore this style of writing where it's sung and written in a way that you can actually understand it and be guided almost the way you would musical theater. And it's a great subject, great story, great characters. It's super compelling.
people are the heroes now. A little excerpt from John Adams's Nixon in China. We heard the Orchestra of St Luke's, conducted by Edo Devart in that performance. And that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, composer and conductor Eric Whittaker. He's coming to Sydney to conduct the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs for the Sacred Vale at the Sydney Opera House, Saturday the 17th of September. sydneyphilharmonia.com.au to find out more. Now, one of the things, Eric, that I mentioned in the intro was your virtual choirs, and to which I suspect many people probably went, oh, yeah, 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 COVID lockdown, they get it, yeah, 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 yeah. But you actually got into that genre a lot earlier. Than <laughs> yeah. Pandemic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Back in 2009, of all things, uh, a friend of mine sent me a video of a young woman named Britlin Losey. She had uploaded to YouTube, and he said, you've got to see this. And Britlin had basically made a fan video to me. She put on a piece that I'd written called Sleep. She pushed play on a CD, and then she sang the soprano line over the top of it. And at the beginning, you can hear her say, hi, Mr. Whitaker, I'm a big fan, and I wanted to make this for you. And watching her do that, send me that video, this was before the selfie era, you know, so that this, this was before everybody was looking directly into a camera and just talking out to the world. It was, it was very immediate. And I was, I was very moved by her, her voice and by the video itself. And I had this super simple idea, which was if you could get 25 people doing what Britlin is doing. And then you just, my big idea was literally to like take all their videos, have them upload them to YouTube. And then I would have different browser windows and just try to click play as fast as possible on all of them, have them play together that a choir would form. But we, we went a little further with it. The first virtual choir we released in 2010 uh, so 12 years ago, and it got picked up by by the international news media, went viral on YouTube, and then suddenly singers from around the world were seeing it and writing to me on Facebook or my website and saying, I don't know what this is, but I've got to be a part of it. When is the next one? It never occurred to me that I would make another one. There'd be a next one. Yeah. Exactly. And then so over the years, we just kept kind of pushing the technology and, and seeing how best we could involve singers from around the world. And as I say, it started very, very humbly. And this most recent version that we did during lockdown, a piece that I wrote called Sing Gently, had 17,572 singers from 129 countries. Wow. Yeah, and all ages and races and colors and creeds and sexual orientations and also uh, all sorts of disabilities. There's, there's blind singers, there's deaf signers, there's people from the cystic fibrosis community that, that sang. It's... I, I couldn't have imagined 12 years ago that this thing would become what it became and that bizarrely once the once the lockdown started that it would become one of the only ways that we all have of continuing to make music together that I never could have imagined. Yeah. I mean, is there sort of an underlying message there? Because, I mean, I, I think back to, you know, the We Are The World style videos of the 80s, you know, those those uh, Africa Aid um, Yeah songs that were done. Is that the kind of thinking behind it as well? It's like bringing the world together? You know, sometimes that got ascribed to what we were doing, but I never felt that way. I never felt like, let's, right. let's get the world singing. My, my only ethos in all of it was just that, let's try to make something beautiful for no other reason than to make something beautiful. And every single person who wants to be a part of it is in. Except for the few solos that have happened over the over the years, there's no audition, and so it doesn't matter if the person can't read music or has a has a very limited vocal range or whatever. If you submit a video, you you're in. You're in it. That's it. Wow. And you're even somewhere in the on screen. So in, like in in the last in Sing Gently, the 
the final tableau, you can see all 17,572 faces. I mean, you have to you have to look closely. If <laughs> They're you're only looking. a few pixels wide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 23 <laughs> pixels is what you get. Uh, each person gets. But um, uh, that's that has continued to be the thing. So it wasn't about bringing the world together. More just, yeah, let's let's do something beautiful for beauty's sake. That was it. I mean, if you accepting literally anyone who who sends you a video. I mean, if I sent you a video of me singing, I'd, I'd be curious as to how well you'd be able to integrate it so it didn't ruin the entire thing. Even if there are tens of thousands of other people, <laughs> or does it all get, does it all get smooshed satisfactorily? This, I'll bet you've got a great voice. But this is the this is the beauty of these massive virtual choirs, is that by massing voices, you really smooth over the rough edges. I, I liken it to a football game. You know, if, if you go yeah. and there's 60,000 people in this, you know that not all those people are singing on pitch and some of them aren't even sober. And it actually sounds pretty <laughs> great. You know, if you've got 7,000 sopranos all singing the same thing, it's, yeah. it sounds pretty good. Well, there's another aspect to your work which I find absolutely fascinating, and that's as like a corporate speaker and some TED talker. I mean, I can tell from just talking to you now how absolutely articulate you are um, and can uh, string words together really well. Is is this something that you enjoy doing? <laughs> well, it, this was all because of the virtual choir. I, this is another thing I couldn't have imagined. So the that first virtual choir had gone out in 2010, and then I get this a Facebook message from Chris Anderson, the curator of TED saying, would you like to come and speak at a TED conference? And even back then this was, I knew what that meant. Uh, and so of course I wrote back and I said, yes. And I didn't have that much public speaking experience. I, I had spent years working with choirs and talking to the audience before my pieces, but that was about it. And to his credit, Chris just, all he said to me was, it needs to be 18 minutes long. And at the rehearsal, the day before my, my first TED Talk, they, they said, why don't you do the talk for us? And I said, you know, actually, I, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say. I'll, uh, I kind of have a structure, but I'd rather just kind of have it be in the moment tomorrow. And he said, well, why don't you do the first minute? So I did the first minute, and then he and, and his, his experts that were with him just said, yeah, try not to move so much just pick a place and stand in it that was it so can you imagine they they're giving me this 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 dais that i'm i'm giving a ted talk with this amount of experience but because of that ted talk it kind of launched me onto this this public corporate speaking circuit and suddenly yeah. i was doing you know talks for fortune 500 companies and apple and google and and facebook and um Initially, I just thought, okay, I'm along for the ride. Let's do this. And, and my goal was to try to convert as many people to classical music junkies as I could. You know, I'm speaking to all these audiences of people that aren't musicians. But pretty soon, I started realizing that it is really, really hard. It is a skill to stand up and speak to people for 45 minutes about anything and take them from one place to another and engage them and hold their attention and really transform them. That is a, that's a skill that I'll spend my lifetime mm. working at. Yeah. And so I kind of embraced it and I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna try to do this as well as I possibly can. And I studied speakers and I watched lots of speeches and I read speeches and, and I still have so much to learn. Uh, but, but at some point it became a kind of part of a vocation that, all right, I, I, this is something I want to be uh, competent at. And, and mm. to, to, have that, <laughs> to have that arrow in my, my quiver, as it were. 
So what are you what are you talking about? I mean, you, you're saying you want to convert them to you know your music, classical music. Are you you know talking to them about how the Sacred Veil was composed, or is it kind of broader and more esoteric than that? Yeah, it's broader, but generally they bring me in to talk about the the intersection of technology and humanism. This seems to be what I talk a lot about, which is because you can imagine now everybody, every corporation somewhere is trying to figure out a way to mobilize their global workforces virtually. And they're running into all the same problems that everyone else does, which is there's nothing more inhuman than these damn screens and these microphones. And, and how do you actually create a human connection in, in this? And, and the beauty of the virtual choir is you can see it. It's, it, it's, there's no explanation. You just hear it and you go, oh my God, that's how you do it. Mm. And so that also then overlaps into leadership techniques and how, how you uh, convince a group of 17,000 people that here's what we're doing and here's how we're going to do it and how to make each person feel special and an essential part of the mm. team. So there's, there's quite a bit to talk about, believe it or not. Yeah. Are you able to, you know, give give a talk to, you know, Facebook one night and uh, more or less the same talk or at least 80% the same talk to Apple the next night? Or is there too many people in the in the room that are the same as the other night? Oh, you mean that they, they heard it the night before and that they're yeah, not? Yeah. Or, or yeah. Well, it, it depends. So I, I definitely have some standard talks that I give, um, but each one gets gets changed a little bit. Well, I should say quite a bit. And so, in fact, just uh, just last month, I went to Boston and I spoke for um, to like a, a teledoc. Um, so that these these are doctors who uh, and a whole infrastructure of doctors who have their meetings with their with their patients online. And so, half of my talk was about music and medicine, and about how important it is, and and showing, you know studies and actual data and, and evidence-based findings that show that music is is what we already know, which is that it's good for us. Um, but then how they can integrate that into their own practices, especially on a virtual level. So do you get converts? I think so. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So many people come up to me afterwards and say, I'm going to join a choir now because I've heard this or, or uh, I'm good. I've had a few people even say, I'm quitting my damn job as a as an investment banker and I'm, I'm going to go do what i really wanted to always do which is be a musician i always try awesome. to talk them out of that say no no no, don't do it trust me you're, you're better off with a real job <laughs> <laughs> oh dear some more music now and well we had the uh the west coast in the form of john adams but now i think we're going back to the east coast with samuel barber knoxville summer of 1915 tell us about this one so this is next to the Ravel. this is for me another one of these perfect pieces it's perfect. I actually, I'm, I'm getting chills even thinking about the piece. For me, when I'm setting music for singers, the poem is the alpha and the omega. It's everything. And the way Samuel Barber, first that he chose this, this is just an introduction to a novel by James Agee. It's not even poetry, it's just prose. That first he saw the potential for this heartbreakingly beautiful piece of music. But then the way he said it, which is, it's so sophisticated and so simple and so pure and so American. And, and it's, it's everything I wish I could do as a composer. I know I'll never get there. The, the efficiency and the, the gentleness and the, the, the musical intelligence, but my God, I'll try. And it's, I've, like the Ravel, I've probably listened to this piece a thousand times.
The Soprano was Dawn Upshaw and the Orchestra of St Luke's conducted by David Zinman for Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Eric Whitaker. Eric, looking through your vast catalogue, I stumbled upon a single piece of musical theatre, just the one. Is that a genre you want to come back to? You did mention musical theatre when talking about Nixon in China. Uh, so yes, yes, and yes. I'm currently writing a little chamber Christmas opera, The Gift of the Magi. And it's just a little one act, but I'm also writing a libretto to it. And I now know that plus that musical theatre piece that you were talking about, Paradise Lost. I think nothing gets me more excited than creating a character that comes to life on stage, that has dimension and that audiences can understand and connect with. I find it magical. I'm, I'm a big movie buff. And so uh, I, I read screenplays all the time. And I, I always think it's, I, I don't know how it's possible that a, a screenwriter can write down a situation and a few lines from a character and you can see this character blossom. It's the one thing that really gets me up in the morning um, these days. And so I would love, love, love to, actually what I'd love to do is go back and work on that, that musical Paradise Lost. We got it up on its feet. It was good. It was okay. It wasn't where I wanted it to be, but we were in the right direction. And then, then I heard Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> and, and that completely changed everything for me because that is a work of staggering genius, Hamilton. And, um, and so now that I know what musical theater can be, I'd like to go back and take another crack at Paradise Lost with, with that in mind. Yeah, so it inspires you. It doesn't it daunt you. You think, oh my God, I can't do that. No, no, no. I've, never, I've never had that, that thing. I've heard people say that where they hear something, they're like, I'm out. You know, <laughs> like, that's, <laughs> that's it. I'm retired. That's never the way it is for me. I always see, oh my God, I, there's, the, I didn't realize that was possible. So, okay, let me, the, in the case of Hamilton, not that we have to nerd out on Hamilton, but that I saw a breakdown in the New York Times where they showed, here's the typical number of words that any Broadway musical would have. And Hamilton has like two and a half times the number of words. And there's always these rules too, which are that you never really have plot happen in song. Typically in musical theater, the plot happens in the story, the book part, and then you kind of hit the brakes and then you explore the character in song. And Lin-Manuel throws all those conventions out. It's just rapid fire, the cleverest, most delicious rhyming. And then these characters just boom, 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 and, and mm. songs that are plot and character and emotion. And, and so I, I get very inspired by that. And I think, yeah. oh God, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna ride that, that, uh, that car. Yeah, I mean, the, the expression I'd use for Hamilton is, is very dense. I mean, and when I saw it, I, uh, and I saw it quite early, so I, I didn't really know, I wasn't on, totally on board with the phenomenon at the time. You know, the whole thing finished, you know, standing ovation, all that. I thought, right, let me go to the bathroom and then I want to see the whole thing again right now. <laughs> because, you know, and very, very little theatre, musical theatre, anything makes you want to see it immediately, straight away. Yeah. That is so <laughs> true. That, that's a perfect way of describing that piece. Oh, so good. Yeah. Well, Eric Whittaker, it's been absolutely superb having you. Um, I really thank you for your time. But before I let you go, you do have one more piece uh, to introduce. And it is, in fact, a piece of musical theatre, but uh, not Lin-Manuel Miranda, Stephen Sondheim. So th this is the, the, the great granddaddy of them all. Uh, Sondheim died recently, just last year. And I, I had the great pleasure of meeting him. I talked to him for about 25 minutes at a party once. And it took everything in my power to just, you know, not genuflect in front of him and say that you've 
we all the things that we were talking about in terms of poetry and poetry combined with music and this ability to take a very few gestures in both those genres and have character and humanity and human truths blossom in front of you, Sondheim does over and over and over again. I, I just, I don't know if there will ever be another Stephen Sondheim. And the piece that I've chosen to me is, is the greatest piece I know, a greatest piece of art I know describing what it is to, to create something. Eric Whittaker, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's truly my pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Composer and conductor Eric Whittaker speaking to me from his home in Los Angeles. He's coming to Sydney to conduct the Sydney Philharmonia Choirs for The Sacred Veil in the Concert Hall of the Sydney Opera House, Saturday the 17th of September. Get along to sydneyphilharmonia.com.au to find out more. Well, that's all for In Conversation for today. Subscribe to the podcast edition by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app so you can listen to the program at a time most convenient to you. And, of course, you should leave a rating and review when you do so. It helps other like-minded people find the show. I'm Simon Moore, and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Flex of love